are listening to the Telios Talk podcast. Our goal is to build spiritual maturity among Christians so that we would be complete in Christ. Here is your host, Wendell Martins. Hello and welcome to Telios Talk. I am your host, Wendell Martins, and today we will be talking about occultic practices in the church. Growing up in the 90s, I experienced something called the Satanic Panic. Churches suddenly started talking about the supernatural, and Christian artists, musicians, and writers were more than happy to oblige them. Since then, most Christians look back at this time and laugh about how silly we all were for falling for such a farce. A number of the leaders of the panic, such as Mike Warnke, were discovered to be frauds, and so we lulled ourselves into a comfortable complacency. But in this complacency, our churches have embraced the very things the satanic panic warned us about. As far back as Adam and Eve, we have chosen to follow the instruction of the deceiver by acting in ways that direct our worship away from God. This practice of disobedience has been as simple as picking fruit, and as despicable as sacrificing children to idols by burning them alive. But regardless of how we choose to rate the severity of our sins, any practice which goes against the will of God is punishable by eternal separation or damnation, as scripture teaches. We should establish what is meant by the term occult before we begin talking about this subject. A good place to go is Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia defines it in this way. The occult is, in the broadest sense, a category of esoteric supernatural beliefs and practices which generally fall outside the scope of organized religion and science, encompassing phenomena involving otherworldly agencies such as magic and mysticism and their varied spells. It can also refer to supernatural ideas like extrasensory perception and parapsychology. According to Christianity.com, Western occult beliefs pertain to secret philosophies such as Hellenistic magic and alchemy, combined with Jewish mysticism. Furthermore, occultic practices can be associated to any teaching of hidden knowledge. Before we begin to describe hidden knowledge, it is important to say that this is very different from the middle knowledge or divine foreknowledge often attributed to God by philosophers like William Lane Craig and Alfred J. Fredoso, a philosophy developed by the 16th century Jesuit priest and theologian Louis de Molina addresses our understanding of the knowledge of God and is known as Molinism. The purpose of this philosophy is to attempt to reconcile tension between divine providence and human free will, but critics seemingly attempt to limit the omniscience of God to refute Molinism. However, by doing this, they tread heavily on the line of heresy. The allure of the occultic arts is as old as the Garden of Eden, when Eve entertained demonic whispers about secret knowledge. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5 read, You certainly will not die, for God knows on that day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. So, how should we describe the hidden knowledge of the occult? There are three popular distinctions the first, called Disguised Knowledge, has its genesis in verses like we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. 
But this verse is often twisted to mean that God disguised knowledge for only the select few to comprehend. This idea suggests that God left clues, which only intellectuals chosen by God can interpret. The twisting of scriptures is prevalent in occultic practices, and we see this as commonplace among the cults. The second, called available knowledge, describes knowledge that requires a profane preparation. Essentially, the knowledge is only made available to a select few after initiating proper protocols. This knowledge is said to be dangerous to the unprepared. These preparations are often described in cultic and satanic practices, including witchcraft, but are often seen in hidden societies such as Freemasons, the Skull and Bones, and the Bilderberg. The nature of this available knowledge requires its adherents to change their allegiance to avoid the dangers threatened against them. Leviticus 26 verse 1 says, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land and bow to it, for I am the Lord your God. The third description of hidden knowledge in the occult is ironically called revealed knowledge. This is the gateway drug of most occult, and this is where most occultic practices found in the church reside. Here is where the discovery of realms, energies, or abilities is encouraged, and many do not see or recognize the danger of these practices. Beyond the facade lies all that relates to magic and anything supernatural or paranormal. The occultic arts synchronize multiple paths, blending Christianity with other religious practices. 2 Peter 2 verses 13b through 15 warn us against this practice of revealed knowledge when it says, They are stains and blemishes, revealing in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having hearts trained in greed, accursed children, abandoning the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the reward of unrighteousness. According to a recent poll from the Pew Forum, as many as 61% of people interweave their religion with belief in psychics, horoscopes, crystal energy, astral projection, and reincarnation. Christian writers like Frank Peretti and Bob Larson popularized the understanding of the occultic practices within the church with their books, exposing fictional accounts of supernatural interference and showing how seemingly innocuous actions begin a pattern of rot in believers. The characters veer down forbidden alleyways, searching for things we all seek, empowerment, belonging, meaning, and purpose. However, occultic teaching is more often masked in religious tolerance, framing its message as open-mindedness, compassion, and enlightenment. Walter Martin, in his book Kingdom of the Cults, wrote, Within the theological structure of cults, there is considerable truth, all of which, it may be added, is drawn from biblical sources but so diluted with human error as to be more deadly than complete falsehood. The practice of occultism in the church is cleverly hidden, often wearing the guise of cultural morality. Do these areas of thought belong in the church? What if I say I'm spiritual, but not religious? Would that mean that my idealistic intrigue within the spiritual realm is encouraged? What about the idea of mysticism, which posits the spiritual knowledge comes primarily by direct subjective experience? Sometimes we hear about humanism and self-deification. 
And that's when we begin to treat humans as the most important or even divine. I know we talk about individualism. We talk about how being your own authority develops a self-styled independence. And here's one we've all heard about, feminism and genderism, where a sense of female folkedness or genderism brings separation by demonizing the image of men and attempting to deny the fatherhood of Christ. There are some teachings in the church that attempt to depersonalize God. This is when who God is becomes interpreted as an energy or a force. God becomes an it and is no longer referred to as he. What about the idea of magical thinking? This is a belief that everything is related by some principle, force, or element which can be manipulated by human will. We see this very prevalent on TV shows and movies these days. Sometimes in the church we have a vague or pseudoscientific view of energy. And this is when God, big G, becomes God, little g, and we begin to indulge in things like chakras, lunar energy, or the force, and many other lies. Sometimes in the church we dabble in something that is known as pantheism, and this is when we deny our belief in God and believe instead that all is God and God is all. And at the end, we come down to something known as paganism, but we would call environmentalism. This is when our worship turns to nature, embodying all the isms we have mentioned. We trade stewardship for saving the planet. When the church becomes a haven for cultural morality, it becomes a worship place of the occult. Father Jean-Christophe Thibault, author and former Luciferian, wrote, The great danger in these practices is that whatever happens, we give up a little of our inner freedom. What distinguishes Christian thought from astrological thought or clairvoyance, for which the divine is only the cosmos, is that we were created by a god. That there is a difference between the creator and the creation, which is not confused. We are made in the image and likeness of God, that is, we are free. Our life choices define our own future. We are masters of our own lives, and it is we who make the choice of good and evil. Hence, Jesus calls to conversion. And I'm sure there are those who call themselves Christians, and yet they wonder, what's the harm with being sympathetic to climate change or feminism or checking your horoscope or having your palm read? A little dabbling doesn't hurt anybody. But the answer to this is wrongly assumed. Playing around in the occult is another way of being half-hearted or a part-time occultist. But the half-hearted occultist cannot be a whole-hearted Christian at the same time. God wants your whole heart. So this is where we need to step away from the descriptions of our cultic practices as though they were hypothetical and speak to how it is manifest in our churches. What does it look like today? We may not see pantheism or paganism blatantly celebrated in our churches, but the gospel is whittled away constantly in other concealed ways. First on our list is the prosperity gospel. It is no gospel at all, but an embrace of such cultic deception as faith healing, angelic healing, discovering a higher self, self-enlightenment, and of course, prosperity. Second are the practices found in traditionalism which numbs its followers from desiring truth, turning instead to charms, spiritual medals, 
amulets, good luck talismans, superstition, and worship or veneration of statues. Third is the tendency toward a new gospel, the gospel of self or practice of Eastern spirituality, which taints the soul through Reiki, crystals, hypnotism, pendulums, magnetism, acupuncture, and yoga. Added to these are cultic familiarity with astrology, zodiacs, and ancestral visitation. Just as there is no such thing as a half-hearted occultist, there is no such thing as Christian yoga, Christian metals, or faith healing, just to name a few. Now, it may not always be clear where the line divides biblical practices from occultism, but in the Old Testament, particularly Numbers chapter 5, we read about practices such as the casting of lots and trial by ordeal. These practices seem very similar to spell casting or divination, but Deuteronomy 18 verses 10 through 12 is very clear when it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, a soothsayer, one who interprets omens, a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, a medium, or a spiritualist, or one who consults the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God is going to drive them out before you. What we need is discernment to recognize who the power is behind the casting of lots and trial by ordeal. The power was God. It was not secret earthly powers. God instituted these practices as a test of obedience. Proverbs 16.33 reads, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And what of meditation? The biblical form of meditation is Godward-focused, not inward-focused, as we read in Psalm 119.27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. This type of meditation is a form of worship. Do not empty your mind, but dwell on Scripture as detailed in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And what is to be said of Christian mysticism? Gnostic mysticism was based on discovering hidden meanings in Scripture. But this varied from what we see in the lives of Peter and Paul, who desired union and relational fellowship with God. When we talk about mysticism today, we are desiring oneness with the universal soul, how different is that from Psalm 40, verse 8, which reads, I delight to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Why do we flirt with occultism in the church? Is it because we see no value in the institution? Church attendance is dropping, our children are abandoning the faith, and our governments have decidedly turned against all the values taught in Scripture. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 famously states, the Spirit says clearly that some men will abandon the faith in later times. They will obey lying spirits and follow the teaching of demons. This isn't a new problem for believers. The Bible is full of stories about people who chased after darkness. When the bride becomes a whore, I think of the book of Hosea. Hosea 4 verse 12 says, My people ask counsel from wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray and they have played the harlot against their God. Writer and apologist G.K. Chesterton, who converted to Christianity from the occult, struggled with the church's embrace of modernism and had this to say, 
Those thinkers who cannot believe in any gods often assert that the love of humanity would be in itself sufficient for them, and so perhaps it would, if they had it. When the church becomes deceived, occult practices blind it and harden the hearts of its members. The church is to help humanity, loving our neighbors because they still have the same needs as everybody else. They are our brothers, sisters, parents, and friends who become excited about a new way of thinking and understanding. However, when our hearts turn away from God, we cannot fulfill our commission. I don't know where I heard this thought, but I think it is sobering considering what we've discussed today. Judas Iscariot is proof that you can sit in a dynamic church with an amazing pastor and still become a friend of the devil if your heart is not 100% committed to Christ. One last thought regarding prophecy in the church. It seems to me that most of the prophecy we see in the church today is just a churchized version of going to see a psychic, a fortune teller, or a card reader. The vagueness, or fortune cookie approach to prophecy, so popular today, shows how immoral we are as a church. We lust after spiritualism because we need our next God high. The phrase, God show yourself to me, is the addictive language of those who have little or no faith. Admittedly, I've said that myself when my faith has been low. But there are those who make this a daily ritual, and it is to those Christians that I question the intention of their cry. When our whole focus is on signs and wonders, we miss the small miracles of God's creation, the common and the mundane. I'm reminded of how Isaiah 61, 9-11 reminds us of who we are as a people of God. Listen first to what God promises, and then how He promises to do it. Then their offspring will be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them will recognize them, because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a groom puts on a turban, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Okay, now listen to how God intends to do this. For as the earth produces its sprouts, and a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. So in our walk as Christians, in our day-to-day, there is not an expectation of the Hollywood ending, and there is no hallmark script. God surrounds us with miracles, subtle and unnoticed, and he rises up righteousness and praise in the same manner, so that we would not be like those around us. We would be different, and so that the awesome power of God would come as a shock to those whose eyes are opened to his glory. Let us pray. God, your glory is immense, but we tarnish it when we seek immediate gratification and selfish desires. May we look for you in the stillness and mundane which we take for granted. Guard our hearts from those practices you detest and turn us back to you. Amen. Next week, Tellius Talk will be in Vancouver. Please pray for me that I would have patience and courage as I stand before the Supreme Court of Canada to defend myself against falsehoods. Next month, our podcast is going to be called I See a Ghost. Now that sounds interesting to me, and I hope you will join us again. Thank you for joining us for this month's episode. 
If you enjoy the Telios Talk podcast, please contact us on Facebook or Twitter X. Don't forget to share Telios with people you know. Our book, Six Good Questions, is a great resource for small groups, your personal library, or as a gift. Look for it on Amazon. Keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month.